Hello and welcome back to Chit Heads. My name is Khalid and I'm one of the learning navigators at Embodied Philosophy and we have a luminous episode today with Tracy Stanley, who is the author of the best-selling book Radiant Rest, Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation and Awakened Clarity. She's the founder of Empowered Life Circle, a sacred community and portal of practices, ritual, and tantric teachings inspired by more than 25 years of studentship in the Shravidya Tantra and the teachings of the Himalayan masters. As a post-lineage teacher, Tracy is devoted to sharing the wisdom of Yoga Nidra, rest, meditation, self-inquiry, nature as a teacher, and ancestor reverence. Tracy is gifted in illuminating the magic and power found in liminal space and weaving devotion and practice into daily life. In this episode, Tracy and Jacob discuss our true nature and what gets in the way of that, the extractive nature of the spiritual marketplace, and sadhana as a source of creativity, clarity, and wisdom, which is perfectly in alignment with Tracy's most recently published book, The Luminous Self. Sacred Yogic Practices and Rituals to Remember Who You Are. We hope you enjoy. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of what, you know, led you to the decision to write this book, which, you know, I've, I mean, I've read it. I've gone from cover to cover, done my, my typical, like reading, reading the meaty bits and then, and then skimming through some of the rest. But I can tell um, just from what I've I've read of it. It is an absolutely beautiful book. And, and, you know, the, the message is, is so perennial, right? It's obviously the teachings about our true self, our true nature and what gets in the way of that. But I found that as I was reading it, what was so fresh about that otherwise perennial message is just how much authenticity you bring to it and your own story. And I just found it really beautiful. Also, the book is just like a compendium of practices. I mean, it really is so chock full of useful practices. So I'm just curious, kind of in the zeitgeist of now, right, in terms of where we are in the world and what you have been perceiving that your students or people have needed, what has inspired you to write this book at this time? Yeah, that's a really great question. And what I would tell you is that I visioned uh, this book and had created the book proposal for this book um, and was out with it as a book proposal in early 2020. Mm. And what I know now is that, um, you know, I had gotten an offer from Shambhala to write a book about Yoga Nidra. And I was very resistant to wanting to write that book because I felt like, oh, there's this book already on Yoga Nidra and this person is writing a book and there's this book. And at some point I kind of realized because people started to ask me, um, do you have a book? Have you written a book specifically about Yoga Nidra? That Yoga Nidra was the one that kind of wanted to come forward first. Um, And then I think also what happened with the pandemic is that we realized, right, how exhausted we all were and how much we really needed rest and how much some of our practices um, that we might've been doing and some of the surface level yoga practices that we had been doing for years might not have been really supporting us in a Mm. time of deep crisis. And so I started to think about this book again and thinking about it in a different way. 
uh, including how the pandemic had changed me. Um, and, you know, went back into the book proposal and really was able to kind of access another layer of vulnerability in this telling of some of the stories that help hopefully to underpin um, the philosophy and how the philosophy works. Um, the philosophies of the yoga sutras that I'm sharing and the kleshas. And so I think for me, this book was a seed uh, for a little bit of time. And I think that I just started watering it, you know, in 2022 and thinking about what really needed, what were the, what are the practices? Cause you said it's like a compendium of practices and what I really wanted to offer that I think was not in the first book proposal or in my first seed of thought was, is there a, a book that is really like a practice manual for life when you are feeling stuck yeah. that can help you at any moment? And what are the practices that I have been given over the years that I've been practicing that have been the most transformational? Mm. And so- you know, these are the practices that I'm, that I'm offering. Um, and I think that, you know, there, it needed to cook a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what summer. it's, I really appreciated something that you write on early in the book about, and I think is such a good, just in general, a good message to those who are taking up the book as potentially a resource for teaching, which of course it could be. And, mm -hmm. you know, you present it in, in some sense as, you know, understanding that some of your audience are going to be teachers that might want to extract some of the, some of the, um, um, the, the practices and you make a point of saying like, you know, take these practices and steep in them for a period of time before you then impart that. So I felt like you must have been, um, responding to what you sensed was sort of a, a habit in the spiritual marketplace to just sort of grab bag spiritual practices and then you know like read a book once just read through the practice and then take it into their yoga class is that a little bit what you were observing <laughs> yes that's exactly what i was observing and what i would say is overall i think this the entire culture is extractive yes is that i would notice uh specifically in classes that people would dip in, they would do the practice once and then I would, or they would hear a lecture and then I would see it as a reel on Instagram. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's like, wait a second, we need to practice these. And, you know, if there's anything that I'm really grateful for, for the, the teachings that I received was really this idea around sadhana, around consistent practice, around devoted practice. Um, and so, yes, I want us to, to be in relationship with the practices because that's what I'm offering is that I've done these practices. They were given to me. Some of them kind of came through me, but I lived with them for a really long time. Yeah. And from my unique experience yeah. now, I'm able to share them. And my hope is, is that if someone reads this book and they are a teacher, that they live with the practices and that they share them in their unique voice, which is not going to be a parroting of what's in the book, but something from their lived experience that actually is a transmission and not a repetition of something that they memorized. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the spirit of that insight because it also, I think we've probably had similar formations with teachers where 
you know, like I, I with from my who I would say is my central meditation teacher, like I wasn't even in a position and it was very clear that I wouldn't be permitted to to introduce these meditation practices until several years of sadhana and a kind of educational process. And, you know, obviously it's not quite that intense with what you're offering, but I think the the sentiment is so important and something that's quite radical in the, in kind of, in the face of what's happening, you know, in the kind of spiritual marketplace these days. So I was really happy that you, that you talked about that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, this happens very early on the book, the egg incident. And the reason why this touched me so much is that I, I was really severely bullied at, in, in school. I went to a Christian Lutheran school and, um, and, and um, I was, you know, criticized for, or bullied for having like a high voice called a girl all the time, that sort of thing before I was called, you know, the, the F word. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and um, so, you know, having this like, reading about your experience of this kind of trauma of bullying and how it's how you related to it and responded to it and then how it kind of fed into the the substance of the book I just thought was really moving and so I was hoping you could sort of talk a little bit about the relationship between that kind of really early bullying incident and sort of this expansive openness toward yogic wisdom Mm. Yeah, so I had a a bullying incident, which you'll have to read in the book, (laughs) that happened when I was uh, very young in in middle school. And, you know, it was something that on the outside, I think if people looked from the outside, they would say, oh, you just kind of brushed it off. It's something that happened to you, but you just kind of brushed it off. But if anyone was really looking what they would have noticed and what I noticed later is that it changed the the trajectory of who I was, right? Somebody who was really interested in learning and excelling and, you know, playing multiple instruments and wearing my glasses and, you know, just being whoever I was. And all of a sudden I started to peel back the things that were making me unique, right? Because I didn't want to be seen because being seen is different was going to mean that I possibly would be in jeopardy, right? So I let go of all of these things in order to stay safe, right? And then some years later, after I'm kind of steeped in yogic understanding to the degree that I am able to understand yoga, I I think it's like this much, but what I understood from this idea of samskara and how imprints start to create a coloring, that was something that was like, okay, intellectually, I get it. It's like, I understand how this can shape a life, right? And then at some point, um, this is back when I was producing films. I had a really big movie that was coming out and it was one of the first ones that I had brought into the company and it was, uh, it was really good. And we were having the premiere and I felt myself receding into the background and hiding in the corner, literally, Mm. because I didn't want to be seen. And I remember someone saying, oh, like, this is your big night, you know, your big night, like this, this movie is going to be a huge hit. And I had to really sit with, and thank God I had yoga at that time. I had to sit with, oh there's a part of me that's afraid of being seen as successful. 
Mm. And then I can go underneath that. There's a part of me that's afraid of being seen. I need to do a Vichara practice right now <laughs> and figure out what is the root of this. Mm. And as I did that Vichara practice and Vichara, I think, comes in many different forms. It's this idea of deliberation so that you can arrive at the source of something or the cause of something. And a lot of times we think about that as self-inquiry. And so I did this as a timeline practice where it took me kind of several days to just with my journal to go back. Well, when was the last time I felt afraid of being seen as successful? And then I saw how it was repeating itself through my entire life, including my career as a model, like, which is so hilarious that you would, you know, I wanted to travel the world, which is why I accepted modeling contract, but I didn't want to be seen. Right. <laughs> so eventually I landed on this experience as the root. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is how samskara shapes the life. Yeah. This is how vasana shapes the life. Yeah. I want to read a passage from your book, which I thought was really beautiful. And actually, there's an additional portion of it that I won't read, but we'll just leave it as a teaser for those who are listening um, so you can read the rest. But I thought <clears throat> this idea of, of bugs splatting on the windshields, I'd never, I'd never heard it kind of put in this way, some scars, and I, I just want to read a portion of it. Uh, you, re you may remember, oh, no, actually, okay, it's going to start sort of mid-sentence, but that's okay. You may remember some of the memories that showed up on your screen of awareness during the timeline rewind practice in the previous chapter. Read the book to find out what that is. <laughs> Each of those <laughs> memories is formed from a samskara, the bug colliding with your windshield. Some of the bugs make little splats and others make the kind of huge yellow gooey splatters that make you think of your think to yourself, I definitely have to wash my windshield at the next gas station. But then at the gas station, there is a distraction, <clears throat> some chocolates you really want, an email dinging, your child needing your attention, and you forget to wash the windshield. Off you go then, continuing your journey with a dirty windshield. You try the next gas station, and there are no resources or tools to wash your windshield. No water, no squeegee, no attendant to give you a hand. So you keep driving, and it just keeps accumulating more and more bugs. You try the windshield wipers, and it creates a giant smear. Now you can't really see what is in front of you. All you see is a coloring. What you see through the windshield does not accurately represent what is out in front of you. You have lost clarity, perception, and vision. You can barely see the road ahead. After a long while, you forget that the windshield was ever clear. That dirty windshield seems perfectly normal. You have forgotten that you have an internal GPS because it is obscured by the coloring and your attention is focused externally. I thought this is one of the most beautiful parts of the book. And um, I really love when narratives, you know, and, and and a way of kind of depicting something through sort of a picture or sequence can capture the depth of a of a teaching. And I feel like this is a, just a really beautiful way of of encapsulating some scara, which as you've said, is this sort of groove or impression that takes on the form of a kind of habituated way of of seeing yourself. Um, and you talk a lot about this in the book in in the form of, you know, different yogic philosophical concepts. And one of the central ones, of course, is is the kleshas, 
Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the clashes. We don't have to go into all, all of them, but maybe if you mm -hmm. want to talk about what you think are kind of the most, what are, what are those obstacles, those clashes that are, that are the most common and that perhaps we need as a culture or individually just generally need to sort of think about or reflect on the most? Yeah. So I think a lot of us might be familiar with the term avidya as this idea of misperception, right? We can think about the bugs on the on the windscreen as avidya, right? Like that we can't see clearly. And then there's this idea that avidya is actually four-footed and that it has four legs or four feet. And so the feet would be raga, which is this idea of attachment. Like what what's what am I attached to? Devesha is like the aversion. And we can even think about that as a form of hatred or you know, something that you really despise. Abhinivesha is this fear of death. And this is the one that I think causes us the most suffering, really. Mm. Um, and Ashmita is this sense of I amness that sometimes is referred to as ego or putting yourself in the center. And I think about that as like this human-centric way that we are in the world, right? It's like this idea of human supremacy is that we, we're we're supreme over everything. And then there's different gradations of that as we think about different forms of oppression. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, the fact that we are, in my opinion, that we are disconnected from the fact that we are nature and that nature is us is a source of a lot of pain and a lot of destruction in the world. And that mm -hmm. goes back to that word extraction that you used earlier in our conversation is that we're continually extracting until the earth becomes ill. And we're not realizing that when we extract from the earth, we're extracting from ourselves. And if the earth is ill, it means we are ill, but we're yeah. unable to see that because there's too many things in our, in our vision. There's too many distractions. We're too out here looking for uh, our wholeness in, in the outside world, as opposed to being in a place where we remember that we're whole. Mm. Mm. This seems like such an, a, a kind of, in a way, fruitful time for that, um, just because it does feel, and I've talked a lot of, about this a little bit with some of my friends about how, you know, in the wake of COVID, we didn't, we haven't really grieved the grief of that, right? We haven't really processed it. It was like, it's over, take off your masks, move on, moving forward keep moving. That didn't really happen, guys. And yet yeah. it shows up in all these crazy ways. And of course, people lost so much. And and I know that you losing your yoga studio or cl closing your yoga studio, I, I don't know what the circumstances were. Um, but it it what it's what stood out to me and why I wanted to bring it up is because I know that, you know, many of the listeners are yogis and yoga teachers, probably probably many of them had yoga teaching careers that were completely decimated by the pandemic um and so when i when i was reading about you closing your yoga studio it kind of reminded me of of how many people have lost their businesses over covid mm -hmm. um and and i'm just i just wanted to know you know just personally like how you recovered from that and what you know just for the sake of you having that you having that very specific experience that it turns out many people probably have as well at this point what spiritual and professional recommendations do you have for teachers sort of in the wake of that kind of a loss mm. 
Well, two, two things I would say. So I, um, I closed my yoga studio in, uh, 2011 and it was a, I would say it was a very slow death that <laughs> <laughs> what happened was I had a, a breakup with my partner who was also my partner in the yoga studio. And I essentially, without realizing it, put the yoga studio in hospice care without mm. acknowledging it. I was just like, oh, we're just going to keep it going. And I wasn't even living in the town anymore. You know, it was just as like, and then at some point, and as you read in the book, I realized that the glaciers were at play. Yeah. I realized that, oh, my identity is attached to being a yoga studio owner. And this is like Raga. I'm holding on with like a death grip as opposed to like, what does this all mean? And so as I started to kind of piece this together, I was like, okay, this is really about a Vesha at the end of the, of the day. Mm -hmm. This is really about the fear of, of death. Like if, if I die as a, you know, my identity dies as a, as a yoga studio owner, does that mean that I'm no longer here, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? And so it just brings you right back to this question of who am I? And so I think you're absolutely right. We haven't grieved. The, I think this unfortunate thing for us is that we've lost so many rituals yeah. and rites of passage, mm. and we don't acknowledge our grief in a way that is meaningful, especially in community. Mm. And I think we're, we're suffering for that. I do see a bit of a shift of change in people talking about grief and people being in community with grief. You know, teachers like Michelle Cassandra Johnson and Reggie Hubbard are doing this work. There are many others, but those are the two that come to mind right now. Yeah, yeah. And so what I would say is for teachers who have lost something is... And this is really what this book is, is about, is that I feel like in two ways, this book is the squeegee for the windshield. And it is also the permission for you to create your own ritual because the rituals have been lost. Yeah. And I think that any time that we go through a transition, which if we think about a transition, a transition is a form of death because there is something ending there is going to be a pause. There's going to be a long space of void, which is what we all experienced during the pandemic. Some of us were able to sit in that void and be with the unknown and partner with the unknown and notice what came up. And some of us, and this is not any judgment in any way, became distracted and wanted to fill that space. And I think that we don't need a crisis to create a transition for us. We can actually say, I'm going to create the transition. I'm going to create a space where I can honor what was and celebrate what's coming. Even if I don't know what's coming, there's always going to be a rebirth. That's just the cycle of nature. And when we're disconnected from nature, we forget that that is just the way the world works is that it's cycles, it's seasons. So what I would offer, um, to people whose businesses might've been decimated. And I'm seeing this already in my community is that in that space 
I think that there were a lot of people, like you said, whose businesses shifted and they could no longer make a living teaching yoga, but they reconnected back to something that was important to them, right? I'm seeing so many people going back to school and studying, becoming therapists, taking the tools that they've been honing through yoga for the last decade or however long and adding a new modality to that to make their life richer. And so what I would say is sit with this, create a ritual to really honor what what you left behind. And also just think about all of the things that maybe came from a long time ago that were your inspirations, the things that lit you up, that brought you joy, that you've always wanted to do and see how you can create something new. Because I do think that this world of, you called it the spiritual marketplace. I think this world of yoga, as we have known it for the last, I'm going to say 30 years, because that's how long I've been practicing, but going to a studio, doing yoga in a specific way, I think that's changing. And I think that yoga teachers are adding more wisdom from other modalities, including yoga into whatever it is that they're offering. And that is going to make this world hopefully a richer place. Mm, what a beautiful answer, Tracy. Um, a couple of things really resonated with me. One, just the going back to <clears throat> things that used to give you joy. I know that this is particularly palpable for me because I actually just last night went to see Old Friends, which is a the Stephen Sondheim kind of review that's starring Bernadette Peters and Leia Salonga. I grew up loving musical theater and I wanted to be on Broadway. <laughs> Love um, that. And um, and Stephen Sondheim was so form formative for me, and like I was, he was my favorite composer. And I realized, I realized, I didn't realize until I went to see the show last night just how much I hadn't grieved his loss and 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 really acknowledged what he meant to me. And I was just like, I was weeping, you know. But it was also this kind of like remembering, oh wow, like I love musical theater, I love going to see shows, I love the theater in general, and 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 that hasn't been as central to kind of my life and and yet it does bring me so much so much joy so i really feel that that recommendation and then in terms so that to me is a ritual just going to the theater but um mm. about the ritual thing i'm curious what you think about cuz something that was really central to your book is this idea of community care and 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 i i know that it can sometimes seem like and and occasionally the quote unquote spiritual marketplace has been criticized for being very individualistic, right? So it's just about your own self-care rituals and and your own enlightenment and and there's a lack of attention to the socioeconomic circumstances, you know, political circumstances, what have you, um, systems of oppression and their effects on the, you know, current moment. And um, and so, you know, I feel like the community care element of your book is is drawing attention to the need for communally situated rituals and so I'm, I'm i'm curious what you would say is sort of the relationship between those rituals that you do need to do on your own and just do make sense to have individually for yourself and the one and how those are situated within a kula or a larger kind of communal dynamic yeah i think that through ritual we learn and we remember and i think it is our duty to be honest that we share what we learn and what we remember. 
because what heals our heart has the potential to heal others' hearts. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we hold on, and I've seen this in spiritual community before, where people want to hold on, they receive teachings. And this I think is problematic in a hierarchical system, right? Is that you receive a teaching, you do the practice for, you know, however many years or months, whatever it is. And then it's almost like the, it, the instruction is almost to hold, you hold the practice and you don't share it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it, it creates this form of scarcity, which I think makes people feel as though they're not spiritually abundant because they don't have access. And this is another form in, in a way of just uh, a hierarchy that some people have access to teachings and some people don't. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we're in community, there are ways in which we can share the boons of the practices that we have done. And I think that that to me is a, a yoga of devotion mm. because it, we're not in this alone. Yeah. And again, going back to the earth as, as a, as a kind of um, inspiration is that earth thrives in biodiversity Earth thrives in the community of all the species and beings that are on its land. One thing is not going to be able to thrive alone. Mm -hmm. So we need to be able to be in community. And I think that when we, when we practice ritual, it's as simple as one to two to three people coming together to sit in silence to meditate together, to chant together, to cry together. That's all that's needed. You don't need like a, a huge, you know, list of things. Yes, it's nice to have the the Hoven and the Samagri and the <laughs> mantra book, but we don't need that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of the issue is that we think that if we we're going to create a ritual that it has to look like it does on Instagram with all the flowers and all the incense and all the things. The crystals no. and the essential oils. Yes. I mean, I have the crystals behind yeah, and me. They and, look I have great. The, and I have the incense burning, but I can oh. also be in a room by myself and invite two people in and we can have nothing and we can be in deeper ritual. Yeah. Without anything. Yeah. It's really interesting what you said, because initially uh, uh, I, I was thinking of asking you about the difficulty that some people who are listening might imagine it is to actually build this type of community, because there's actually been, I had an, I did some interviews with some yoga teachers uh, when we were doing this kind of future of the yoga teacher project. And a couple of people were like, I have no one here. You know, there's like, there's, there's no one around to teach, you know, there's no yoga studios, blah, blah, blah. Um, but she had created a very small group of women who met relatively regularly. And it was a very casual thing. Um, and when you, when you kind of boiled it down to two or three people, I think many people listening can Im imagine, you know, finding that kindred one or two kindred spirits. And that it sounds like is enough. Um, mm -hmm. If it, if it has that sort of that that openness to the the spiritual you know dimension or whatever you want to call it so so it isn't so much that you need to find your 
Kula of a hundred devotees to Swami something something Ananda. <laughs> it's that um, it's just finding. A, a, is it is it to you more like finding a, a a group of kindred spirits who are equally committed to going deep in this way? Yeah, I think that first of all, all you need is two other people, mm -hmm. and I think that. It doesn't even need to be um, necessarily a kindred spirit, but someone who is open to learning, to receiving, someone who wants to be out of pain and you happen to have the, the tool, somebody mm -hmm. who needs someone to hold space for them because a loved one is ill or a loved one has transitioned and you have the ability to hold space because maybe you've been there before. Mm. So we have opportunities all the time to be in community. Mm -hmm. We can be in community literally when we're standing at the line in the checkout at the grocery store. Mm. Mm. I wish I'm going to have to take some more time at that line. <laughs> <laughs> People are not very openly friendly here in here in London, I have to say. So <laughs> I used to live in London. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, there actually it's much there's a much more of a communal sort of spirit, I would say, in New York than there is in London, even though people would never expect that from New Yorkers. But there really is. Um, anyway, I wanted to take this moment to read another um, passage from your book. This is actually one of your I guess you'd call it one of your poems that that begins one mm -hmm. of the chapters. And it's so all of these are very beautiful and they're threaded throughout the book for those that are listening um, and again, in addition to these beautiful poems that obviously are upsurges of creativity that have kind of been born of, of Tracy's sadhana, there's then, of course, the sadhanas that could also um, uh, help to uh, cultivate that in you as well. And this is actually one of the, the beautiful things I think of, about sadhana and that I see really evident in your book, in addition to just the, the authenticity that kind of, or that just kind of feels that is per that permeates it is the the way in which this your sadhana has clearly given birth to creativity because in my experience that's so much of what sadhana gives is uh, because clarity and and wisdom is some sort of uprising of creativity in some deep way mm -hmm. um but anyway to read this uh, poem of yours am i asleep or am i awake let me lean into the practices that fortify my discernment Remind me to turn my face toward the light of divine intelligence. The door to the prison cell is open. Attune me to the vibration of truth and amplify my core frequency so I can taste my true nature. I trust that I can hold both fierce compassion and the power to wield the sword to cut through any demon. I lay down fear as I walk through the sacred portal toward freedom. I honor the transition. I reclaim my magic within the void I only need to remember. Now let me sleep. Now, now let me ask again, am I asleep or am I awake? So beautiful. Mm, thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you later if we if I can post that to our Instagram feed. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so um I wanted to ask a question about that that I think I've asked it a few times, I think, in the history of this podcast when we start to talk about the true self 
um, and, you know, our essential nature as being kind of beyond names and forms and ha having a sort of formless eternal quality. And there is a sort of, um, there is an, I don't know what, what I want to call it, a, um, a controversy or a, or a dialogue, let's say, for it's to make it sound less dramatic, around, you know, the, these tiers of our identity, and you describe it in your book as the personality, and another, you know, and the other being our eternal self, and we have these sort of in dialogue and in some kind of relationship. And sometimes, as you are well aware, there is this, this kind of thread of of spiritual wisdom that suggests one should kind of mute one's individuality, repress it. In some sense, it kind of reminds me of what you said earlier about hiding from yourself in a mm -hmm. way and, and confusing the hiding from yourself and muting your individuality and confusing that with realizing your true nature in a way, like maybe that's something. So there's this, there's this, there's this kind of well, our true self is beyond all forms and therefore like just get over your individual, get over these things about <laughs> your own identity, get over all these needs to affirm your, your own kind of idiosyncrasies in comparison to other people. Forget about all this oppression stuff. It's just in your imagination, right? Like that's a very easy mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. misunderstanding, I would say. Right of the teaching. Yeah, I I feel like that is also a form of spiritual bypassing, to be honest. Yes, right. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what is the relationship between the needs of, let's say, let's? I think some teachers have called it like integration, psychological integration, on the one hand, and the needs of also kind of sociocultural affirmations, liberations, emancipations, <clears throat> rectifying of cultural imbalances and oppressions and the relationship with one's true self. Mm. Love this question. So the first thing that I would say is the people in my community and myself, I can only speak to my experience. We're not living in a cave. <laughs> I'm not living in a cave. Uh, you know, I do live on a mountain, but I'm not living in a cave. I don't have, I'm not practicing, you know, all day and all night and have people bring me chai and, and lunch and, and dinner and have no worries in the world. We need to I get you that though, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I feel like we're in the world and we have to be able to live in the world and yet remain above the world in a certain way. Right. And when I say above the world, it's not a hierarchical way. It's not getting caught permanently in the enmeshment of all the distractions of the overculture. And when we're able to be above, we have a different perspective, right? Because we're able to see the injustices. We're able to see and celebrate the uniqueness of individuals and their unique expression, which is why I believe we're here. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if we can celebrate others' unique expressions and we can also recognize that our true self is connected to everything and everyone that is that the actual universe and the cosmos has all of these patterns that are also inside of our bodies 
then what does that mean for who and what we are? So I, I'm sorry, but I'm not buying into this idea that we need to eradicate, um, you know, the ego. Yeah. I think we need to be aware of how the ego keeps us in pain. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's what I like to do is look and see how is how is my ego. And this is, a you know, going back to the loss of the yoga studio. Right. How is the loss of this yoga studio creating suffering in me? Mm -hmm. And how can I bring in more freedom and more space? Mm. How can I remember that I am not this thing, this, you know, this form, right? Yes, I'm also not the name, but I am this creativity. I am this uniqueness that's expressing itself in the world. And it's a both and. I'm not interested in this lifetime of releasing the both and. I think that's the beauty of being alive mm. is that I get to know that I'm connected. I also get to know that I'm unique. And part of my uniqueness allows me to be in my creativity and to share so that others can express themselves, hopefully, in their own creativity. And they can find more freedom in them in their own life and then pass that on. That's what I think we're here for. Mm. I mean, I would agree that <laughs> I love that. I sort of, I love the sort of non-dual tantric resonance of so much of what you've just said. It's, it's really beautiful. And, and as someone who feels very enlivened by that philosophy myself, it seems like a perfect note to end on. Um, so I, of all the things we've discussed, which I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in such a short time, but is there anything else that maybe we haven't touched on that you think is a really central feature of the book or a teaching or just a point of view or perspective that, that you feel like is important to share? You know, I, I would say um, one of the the titles of one of the chapters is that which makes you fall is that which makes you rise. And I would just want everyone to remember that anything that has ever caused them pain or stuckness or discomfort is a portal to freedom and awakening. Mm. Beautiful. So I've been speaking with Tracy Stanley, and we've been speaking about the content of her latest book, The Luminous Self, which will be released in, can you give us a date, Tracy, when it'll be yeah, released? Yeah, October 10th. October 10th. So we are in the 6th of October right now, as we're doing this interview, 2023. So if you're listening to this before then, which you probably aren't, because I think it's going to take us about a week to publish. So the book is probably available as you are listening. And uh, of course, if you're listening to this far into the future, then uh, um, I'm sure you can find her book by heading to Amazon and all the the other online bookstores, I imagine, would have have the book, but definitely Amazon, I'm sure. Yeah. And on my website, which is tracystanley.com, um, there's a link to all the independent bookstores and all the places where you can find the book. Beautiful. And Tracy, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about what's coming up for you? Are you offering any workshops? Are you doing any courses? What's happening? Uh, yes. So I have a workshop that's happening at Kripalu um, coming up in October. 
Uh, I also have uh, something that I'm doing with Wonderlust uh, in Mexico in December and something with Modern Elder Academy on the power of deep rest happening in February. And then of course I have my writing and resting retreat that happens at Goats Ranch next year and a retreat in Costa Rica, but you can find all those things on my website. Writing and resting. When is that? that sounds- uh, that's going to be in September uh, of next year. Yeah, it's such a great workshop and and experience to be in silence and spaciousness mm. and have the time to be able to really dive into work. And I love that. Time. I love that. I, I kind of want to go to that myself. Where is it happening? Uh, Ghost Ranch in New Mexico, in Abiquiu, Ghost- New Mexico. Oh, maybe this is my chance. My chance yeah, here we go. <laughs> Well, Tracy, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom with us and writing such a beautiful and authentic book. It really, it means a lot to the community. Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. It's been an honor.